Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Impressionable. This week I am joined by the amazing Ella Glover, who is a freelance reporter and features journalist based in Manchester. She covers work that is to do with activism, the cost of living crisis, harm reduction and lifestyle. She's amazing. We chat all things being a freelance journalist and go into a bit about perceptions of the working class. So it's a really, really great episode. I just wanted to apologize before we start on the audio. We had a few technical difficulties, but hopefully you can hear everything okay. Uh, So yeah, stick around. It's a really great episode and I'll see you at the end. Bye. Hi everyone, welcome back to Impressionable. This is the podcast that we learn about all the ways that we have been shaped by the world. This week I'm joined by Ella Glover. Hey. How are you doing? I'm good thanks, how are you? I'm not too bad thanks, yeah. Have you had a good Monday? Yeah, to be fair, I was off today, which is lucky because I went out on Friday and I've been very fragile. (laughs) Are you like one of those people that has a long hangover? Yes, very much so. Or maybe I just like, I avoid it on Saturday and Sunday and then it all comes to me on Monday. Mm-mm. I've always had like a horrible hangover when you wake up drunk the next morning as well. That's the worst. And they like hit you at like dinner time. You think you've avoided the hangover and then it all comes at once. Yeah. And when you work in like hospitality or something, that is the worst thing to happen. Honestly, honestly. Um, but for those listeners that don't know who you are, why don't you give a little introduction to you? Yeah, so I'm a freelance journalist living in Manchester. That's why, really. I went to Salford Uni. And did you like it? Yeah, it was actually... Uni was, like, the best years. Everybody says it, and my mum used to say it all the time. She'd be like, university's the best years of your life, and you're like, whatever. But it really is. Yeah, no, I found that too. So did you study journalism at university? No, I actually studied English language. Um, When I went to uni, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do something that I enjoyed which was English and I just wanted to move away from home so I just went. Oh that's amazing and you've been there ever since really? Yeah pretty much like the exact same like three mile radius. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us about where home is. Where did you grow up? So I'm from St Helens which is like 40 minutes down the road from Manchester. It's like right in between Manchester and Liverpool and yeah I mean I wouldn't recommend many people to go there to be fair there's nothing to do at all but it is home so whenever I'm there on Christmas Eve and all my friends are home as well I do love it I've got a soft spot for it but none of my friends really live there anymore so Mm, and no that's totally relatable I find that a lot of people that grew up up north tend to migrate anywhere but where they grew up you know especially if you're from like quite a small town it's not like there's many like there are job opportunities but not journalism opportunities (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to chat to you a bit about obviously your career um, and your background. So kind of what was it that really got you into thinking, okay, I want to be a journalist and I want to be a freelance journalist? So my answer is probably going to annoy people who have always wanted to be journalists. Like, you know, I knew people in sixth form who would do like the college radio or they'd be part of the like sixth form paper and to be fair, there was one in uni as well. There was a like a journalism society, but only journalism students were allowed to join it. I think I probably would have done if other people were allowed to in uni. But yeah, um, I only kind of realised quite late because I was I had a year out of uni 
and I've always liked to write. When I was little, I'd be like, I want to be an author when I grow up. And I just started a blog and I was going to go into copywriting and maybe social media marketing at first, but I was just writing my little blogs. They're quite embarrassing to look back at now. And my boyfriend was just, he was reading them and he was like, you, you should pitch these to like newspapers. And I was like, can you do that? So I just did a little <laughs> bit of Googling and ended up being like, okay, well, maybe I'll try and get some of my work in, in a publication and went from there. That's ex- that feels like quite a natural route. Like it feels like quite a nice pipeline that you went along. It was quite nice. And I think it was like, because I'm not that good at, well, I'm not good at social media marketing. I'm all right at copywriting, but it doesn't really excite me, if you know what I mean. So mm-hmm. it was like really nice to just fall into a career that I actually really love just out of nowhere. Yeah, definitely. So what what originally inspired you to write your blog and what c- continues to inspire the, the work that you write today? That's an interesting question, actually. I think, so the reason I started my blog was because obviously I wanted to get into these writing industries and I was like, I need a portfolio. Um, so I would just mm. kind of write about whatever whatever I was thinking about, really. Like a lot of, it was kind of lifestyle I suppose. Like I did one article about what I do in the gym <laughs> And I would, I did like a food review, I did a little holiday blog, just like a little bit of everything. And um, there was one that I wrote that was like about fat phobia and stuff. So it was just like a big mix. But with journalism, it's always about kind of giving people a voice who probably wouldn't usually have a voice. That's what I try to do anyway. I mean, that's like quite a, I'm being nice to myself by saying that, but that's, that's the goal. Um, so that's what most of my stories kind of centre around. Do you have like a favourite recent story that you've wrote? I have quite a few actually. My favourite ever story that I've written is, it was for Hook magazine and it's called The Mersey Model, How Smack City, in quotation marks, Mm. avoided a HIV epidemic. And it's basically about in the 80s, in Liverpool and Merseyside, they had the first ever needle needle and syringe exchange programme, which was for heroin addicts to take back their equipment get harm reduction advice and like get clean needles basically so it was instead of arresting them they were just like kind of accept like look people have got a problem this is how we're going to help them and my mum was involved in it I found out when I was on the phone to her in lockdown and I was like that's so interesting because those things don't exist anymore and it's like such like a blip in history and it literally like I can't remember the statistic but it's at the end of the article like compared to Edinburgh, Glasgow, and there was another city down south. Um, like Liverpool had no HIV deaths, but it had, well, it had some obviously, but like the proportion was so low compared to the rest of the country, even though they had just as bad an epidemic. So I got to speak to everybody who was involved in that. I'd have like two hour interviews, learning so much. That was like the best story to write. And recently I wrote a story about how the cost of living was affecting sex workers and that was super interesting and I felt like nobody was really writing about it yet so it was quite fun to explore and again give those people a voice who usually wouldn't have one. What was the conclusion from the article like what did you learn? For the sex workers piece? Yeah yeah yeah. It was really interesting actually so I, I was reading this book called Revolting Prostitutes by um, I've got it right next to me actually Molly Smith oh. and Juno Mack which is a great book if you you should read it if you're interested but it's basically like now that like people have less money 
they're more desperate to make money, which means you're more likely to, and also clients have less money too. So they're not as likely to see a prostitute or mm. you know, go to the strip club or whatever it is. So people are, they have to take on jobs that they probably usually would have declined because mm. they just need to make ends meet. And it's actually making it a lot more dangerous because they just don't have it. Well, they don't have rights anyway. And now they don't have as many like liberties, I suppose, in which clients they choose. And yeah, it's, it's really, really interesting. Yeah, I could imagine the risk threshold is reduced when people are like, fuck, I just need to pay my rent. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, thank you for sharing these articles and I recommend everyone go read them because every article of yours that I've read, I've always loved. Um, and I do think you have a real talent for it. So everyone should go read them. I, I wanted to know a bit about more about um, being a Northern voice and how it feels to kind of be a, a journalist and also a Northerner. Does it come into play or is it not that important? Um, first of all, thank you. That's <laughs> nice of you to say. But yeah, I think these days with freelancing, so there's definitely a lot more Northerners in the game, but all the publications are based down south, like the Guardian's office is down south, even though they started in Manchester. Uh, we have the BBC in Manchester, but it's all broadcast. Um, and obviously there's like the MEN and those kinds of papers. But I do think that when you don't have enough reporters or correspondents up north, you're going to miss stories, you're going to miss, it's very, um, it doesn't matter how much like you go on social media, if you're not out in the communities that you're reporting on, you're never really going to understand it. Mm. So I feel like it, it, it does help. And there's been stories that I've like, I re recently went to the Port of Liverpool to interview the strikers, um, the guys who are on strike. And that was great because you couldn't really send a Londoner up to Liverpool. Well, you could, but it would cost a lot of money. So the chances are that these people, if you ask someone from Liverpool, uh, London to report on it, they're going to ring the strikers instead, which is what I do a lot as well. But it's much better to be there in person, have like a genuine conversation. So it does help with reporting on like more Northern stories. Yeah. How, how is that side of the job? Are people generally receptive when you want to talk to them about writing um, them being part of the articles? Um, it does depend. With the strike, everybody was up for chatting because they obviously want the word to be out there and they probably had a load of reporters like with microphones in the face already. <laughs> it was a bit awkward though because I look really young. Everyone thinks I'm like 16 and I'm a girl and like all the, it's just like, you know, dockers, like all these like big men, scousers as well. And I was just like turning up and they were like, oh, you're here for a uni project. And I was just like, no. <laughs> So it was, it's a bit nerve-wracking turning up to places like that. But usually people are quite receptive. I had to go to Liverpool again the same week with... It's called Woo. It's a new publication with ITV. It's really good, actually. You mm. should check it out. And we had to... I was with a photographer. And we had to, like, stop people in the street and ask them about their views on politics. Yeah. Which is obviously, like, really awkward. And we didn't have, like, a big camera or a microphone. We were just like, I was there in my North Face puffer jacket, just like, hey, uh, have you got any opinions on politics? And like, people were, in like four hours, I think we did seven or eight interviews with people. Like, we got so many no's. Somebody asked me if I was a commie. And then somebody else was like, oh, if I said my views around here, I'd get stabbed. And I was just like, are you a Tory? And he was like, no. So I was just like, what are you talking about? You're in Liverpool. But I think what was putting people off was actually the camera they had to have the picture taken 
So people were always a bit like, oh, maybe. And then we'd be like, we have to take your picture. And they'd go, no, actually, never mind. Mm. So it can be hard in those situations, but it just depends on the story. Mm. It was interesting what you were saying about like being a woman and being quite young. And obviously all of these different intersections probably come into play when it comes to like how people see your journalism. Like, have you ever not been taken seriously? That's a good question, actually. I don't know if I've ever outwardly not been taken mm. seriously i don't know if anybody's ever like been really like blatant about it i remember once i rang somebody for a story it was like somebody from a union actually um i'm guessing he was like a little bit old and he was just like oh you sound very young to be a journalist and i was like that after that i was like i am writing the best story i've ever written and i can't wait for him to see it because i was just like <laughs> yeah maybe i am young but what's that got to do with it you know what i mean but I don't know if it was like necessarily him not taking me seriously. I think it was just a bit of a shock. I yeah. Don't know. And we've we've chatted a little bit before, but how do you feel about like has it ever contributed to a feeling of imposter syndrome? You know, I feel like journalism is quite a crowded space, um, and you're doing incredibly well in it. How do how does how is that all coming into play? There definitely is imposter syndrome. It's actually like reduced a little bit over the years. I think it's like you start to believe in yourself because you know you get editors coming to you or mm. people asking you to go on podcasts for example and you're like oh wait people actually read my work and they like it so at first it's much harder because especially because I didn't really like train to be a journalist I, I didn't have this like eight year like education of being like I'm going to be a journalist at the end so it kind of felt somewhat undeserved in a way I don't know how to really explain it if I always say, like, I think I did get a little bit lucky with the way that my career went. I'm not saying that I'm not good at it. I must be a little bit good at it to have got this far already. But I do think there was an element of luck involved. Yeah. I mean, they say that about all great careers that people kind of have these breaks, but it's about whether you can perform when you get the big break kind of thing. And I and on what you were saying about, well, a little bit earlier, are the barriers to entry lowered now like is there a lot of diversity within the industry um there's not enough diversity in the industry especially when it comes to you know staff roles uh, especially political journalism it's not diverse at all um the thing with freelancing is like you can say that it makes it easier to get into the industry because you know you don't have all a lot of people there's a lot of nepotism in journalism mm. like it's all about who you know that kind of thing and i was really lucky that i just started freelancing uh, while I was still in uni so I had a student loan I'd been working in hospitality so I had quite a lot of savings they all disappeared in a year <laughs> when I wasn't working at uni but I wasn't really worrying about paying rent um, which meant that I could I had like about a year of trying to freelance where like the money that I was making was not enough to survive on mm. but it was almost like a side hustle kind of thing um, and if you don't really have you know, a family to fall back on or a student loan or something like that, it is much harder to just be like, I'm going to freelance. That means you have to do it alongside a full-time job, which means it's harder to find stories, harder to put as much work in. So, yeah, it, if you're rich, it's much easier. I will say that. If you're rich, it's much easier to get into journalism than if you're not. Yeah. Um, I... And I think with staff roles, all of the other intersections come into play as well, like race. Hmm. is a big one gender a little bit maybe but not as much yeah and all these things influence what people write about you know the more diversity the more different stories you're gonna get um the more people are gonna feel represented in those stories too 
Of course, because it's like, it's the classic example of, you know, like the older like boomers or whatever, writing the stories about why our generation and millennials can't afford to buy a house is because they eat too many avocados. Yeah. It's like the classic line and it's so out of touch. Like it's just not true. If you actually went out and spoke to people who are our age, who are like scraping by trying to save money, like going on what one night out a month, if that, or like going on all the nights out and not being able to afford to save. Like you basically have to choose between fun and a mortgage. And they just don't seem to believe that. They think that it's so easy. It's just like not eating the avocados or not getting your takeaway coffee. Oh, so, 100%. Yeah, you are right. I've, I've seen that rhetoric with the cost of living crisis as well and like working class people and people write and like maybe they should just stop going the pub on a Friday you know maybe they can pay their bills if they don't have that pint basically just work and be miserable so that you can have a little bit of money like it's ridiculous I could go on and on and on about that yeah it's um well actually why don't you what's your hot take do you feel like this is this narrative is pushed a bit too much it's just stupid like it's hard for me to even put into words like I don't know why anybody would say that like the fact that the, we were we were growing up when the 2008 crash happened yeah like the economy's never been the same from then then we had covid so we drained all our money apparently all, all of our taxpayers money um during covid now inflation's at literally an all-time high this is why I was speaking to my granddad about it and he was saying that the reason people on the telly they can't understand why workers are going on strike asking for like a 10% pay rise is because when was the last time inflation was at 10%? It's literally unprecedented. It To them, they're like, 3% should be enough because 3% has been enough for the past, I don't know, decade. Don't fact check me on that. Um, but, and now it's like 3% is nothing. It's, it's a pay cut. And they just think that, I don't know, it's just like such a disconnect. Like they don't realize that all the factors in the world are just so different to like the seven the 70s 80s 90s it was so much easier to buy a house my mum's house was 30 grand 30 grand we would need to put that on a deposit i know i know it's insane it's so inaccessible and i think it is i agree with you like offensive when we're being told you can't have that avocado you can't have that takeaway coffee because that's the reason that you can't afford a house when there's so many different reasons why we can't afford a house and caused by people much older than us in the first place it's even the same thing as saying like oh you're on benefits but you've got a telly like okay i'll sell my telly for 400 pounds that's not even gonna pay my rent like why wouldn't you have a telly or like a playstation for your kids it's like they think that basically poor people just have to live a miserable life that revolves around work they're not allowed to enjoy anything and it's like literally the cards that you've been dealt like it's not it's never really a personal failure this is what I don't know why it must make them feel better to say that because they think it makes them believe that they got to where they are by hard work alone Mm. not just like circumstances which is just not the case a hundred percent also just like the complete disregard of nuance and it just absolves them of any sort of feeling of like we need to level the playing field because if you put the blame on the individual then you don't have to address the systematic issues that cause people to be you know so disadvantaged in the first place yeah, it's definitely a cop-out. I agree. 100%. Um, let's move on a little bit because I want to talk a bit about the perks for your job that we discussed. And this is just honestly to get the tea a bit. I want to know about all the amazing PR trips and the gifts and the upside of being like, sell sell the dream, sell the journalism dream to me. 
this is actually where the imposter syndrome kicks in <laughs> because first of all I feel a little bit embarrassed talking about it because it's like going on free holidays you do feel that's being a scrounger that's the definition of a scrounger going on free holidays when you can afford to go on your own holidays but you're not exactly going to turn it down are you and I always say like journalism like it's a great job it doesn't have that many benefits like the pay is not great you have to do a lot of work a lot of hours so you might as well take the benefits when they come but I started writing lifestyle for metro.co.uk this year so I've never really had the opportunity to go on press trips because you have to pitch them and you have to get an editor to let you go and an editor has to trust that you're a good travel like travel writer to commission you and I've never done any travel writing but when I was working at metro like because they they already know you're a good writer like you basically work for them so they're kind of a little bit more liberal and they'll let you let you give it a go and I got to go to Barbados which is it, it was crazy we it was so like we looked up how much it would have been and it was just obscene like everyone who was there was on a honeymoon or they were retired or they were just like they'd flown first class you know and we were like oh my god what are we doing here but it was like the best holiday ever although I will say it is fun going on these like bougie press trips to like five-star hotels but it doesn't actually beat like going to a new place with your mates and just like properly exploring like staying in a little rubbish airbnb because you're not going to spend that much time there um but yeah the press trips are amazing and i once got sent this water bottle it's actually over here wait there let's see the water bottle it's crazy i've not used it for ages <laughs> this don't put this in but this water has been here for like it's stagnant this water i've just not touched the water bottle but look at that it's got like the markings Ooh. on it and it says stuff like you're glowing keep going when I was using this water bottle, I would drink so much water, like three litres a day. I thought it was a gimmick, a marketing gimmick, but it actually works. So if you can't drink enough water, get one of these bottles. This is the best gift I've ever had. You're selling yeah. it to me. That's so funny, like, that a water bottle can do so much for a person. <laughs> I know, I know, honestly. And the other good thing is books. You do get books sent to you if you ask for them. And you can do like author interviews and stuff, which is always oh, wow. fun. So is there an element of, obviously we spoke earlier about pitching and commissioning. Is there an element of like having to go after what you want to do? Or does, does a lot of the ideas come to you through someone else being like, can you write this for me? So when you're starting out, if you want to go straight into freelancing, um, it is all you. Mm. And you can really, really quickly learn what's a good story and what isn't. Um, obviously sometimes editors are saying no because they don't have the budget or there's just another reason why they're saying no it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad story but if you've asked like five editors and no one's getting back to you obviously like it wasn't quite right for the time so you very quickly learn like how to find a good story um, and you have to just pitch everybody my first ever story that I wrote was like an op-ed for the independent um, it's kind of embarrassing now but at the time I thought it was amazing and the editor that commissioned me, I, I followed up with her three times before she said yes. So you just have to be mm. like relentless and just like chase and chase and chase. Um, and then eventually once you've built up a little bit of a name for yourself, people will start, they will start coming to you. Um, and slowly it kind of balances out you doing a mixture of pitching and assignments, which is like ideal because it's very, very hard to be coming up with ideas all the time and making them sound good enough you have to sell them you know yeah 100% um I'm actually this is more of a question of my own interest um so indulge me here a second 
because you know you're saying like building up this portfolio and almost like an online presence do you ever feel like there's a fine line in between writers that like border then become kind of influencers and end up coming into that like creator economy especially if people talk about their articles on tiktok or whatever like is there a blend now a journalist like multi-hyphenate everything like everyone else is supposed to be yeah there is and I was actually thinking about this earlier when I was like preparing for the podcast I was thinking about it's with the press trips it so just to go back to the press trips I was thinking that you know when you're going on these press trips like influencers go on them too and there's a very fine line between doing marketing for a company which is what an influencer does and doing actual journalism and being honest and truthful while you're reviewing a hotel for example there is a fine line there uh, between being an influencer and being a journalist and yeah when people end up with like 10k plus followers on twitter or they move over to instagram yeah there's i read a really good article about it and i can't remember which publication it was for but i'll have a look and i'll send it to you and please do podcast. yeah um it was it was about like the influencer journalist hybrid like it definitely is a thing and it it really helps when you're a freelancer again because obviously if you've got an online presence and people know your name they're going to click on the article when they see your name yeah um so yeah it it is it is, and then you get a book deal <laughs> so, <laughs> there you go yeah of course I mean you you everything that you write kind of builds up this personal brand you know you might be known as being the best women's health writer or you might be known as being the best like you're on top of the cost of living crisis from all angles um so you you get probably editors coming to you because you're the gal that does that you know yeah, it's really valuable to have a niche when I was starting out. And I still do a little bit of everything. Like I love lifestyle journalism. I've got a soft spot for it, especially because I think a lot of the questions that get answered by lifestyle journalism are questions that young girls, especially, or even women want to know the answer to. And there's like a gap in education or, mm. you know, whatever. Like it's just not covered in the mainstream press. So I do love um, lifestyle journalism as well, but I do think it's valuable to have a niche because now I'll, I'll mostly report on strikes or just like general cost of living, social justice type things, and then editors know to come to you. Whereas if you do absolutely everything, it's hard for an editor kind of, it's good not to be pigeonholed, obviously, and it's good to do whatever you want. But if you want like a reputation, it's good to have a niche, I think. It's actually a big, a big topic in the journalism world whether or not you should have a niche oh interesting really is is people generally on one side of the debate or the other yeah i mean if you've ever been on journalism twitter like people will start a debate out of nothing (laughs) but yeah people do it is i think when you're starting out you don't need a niche you have to try everything see what you're good at but once you do find out what you're good at and importantly what you're passionate about it's good to stick to it because then you can develop it much, much faster and just like, yeah, get a reputation. Um, I'm just thinking as well, like a lot of the stuff that you write is political. Do you ever get any haters? <laughs> Do you ever get people online that are like, this woman doesn't know what she's talking about? I feel really lucky, you know, I actually never get hate. Some people do. Mm. I've had some like weird emails and the occasional comment or like, I don't like writing opinion pieces because I'm... 24 right Mm. I don't really know anything to be honest my opinions changing constantly like I could read a book and be like oh yeah like I really agree with that and that can like that can be my opinion and then I can write an opinion piece about that and then I might read another book and be like oh actually I changed my mind 
And I think like, or even if you just miss out, like, you know, you only get 700 words or so, you can't say everything. And then you'll get people like who, who usually would agree with you just being like, oh, but what about this? And you're like, well, yeah, but you know, I didn't have enough words to say it. And I do get a little bit like nervous and shy to write opinion pieces because I'm just waiting for the backlash. But I have been lucky not to get too many people like being mean to me online. That's good. That I that's the one thing that like always spooks me about the podcast as well is that when you put something out there into the world, people can people can rip it apart, you know, and you just have to take that risk because it's just much more valuable making it and risking people not liking it than not making it at all, you know. I think that's the importance of believing in in what you're writing about like and also um I don't know, this is quite a niche like journalism point, but if you've got a hypothesis for a story, for example, I was saying, oh, is the cost of living affecting sex workers? And if I spoke to 10 sex workers and they all said, actually, no, like, it's not it's not bothering me, to be honest, like, it's not really had any, any effects. Obviously, I knew that wouldn't be true, but if that had been the case, I wouldn't, you can't just cherry pick, like, three people who, who are having a problem. You have to just accept, like, oh, my intu- intuition was wrong with that one. Um, so... I'm not going to follow the story anymore. And if you're really, if you're writing about things that you already don't really believe in, I don't know, it's just not going to be convincing, is it? No. And you're basically inviting inviting hate. If you know that the story is good and it's true and it needs to be told, like it doesn't really matter what anybody else says. Definitely. Has, has there ever been a disjuncture between something that you've been asked to write and you're like, this is awful, why am I writing this compared to what you actually want to write? Like, have you ever been commissioned, like, silly articles? There's, well, there's never never been anything I would say that's awful. Like, if there was something that I, like, was morally opposed to, I just wouldn't write it. Yeah. But when you work in news, journalism, like, you do kind of have to just, especially online, I'm going to spill the tea a little bit. You have to write about anything that they ask you to write about. And just because they need, because it's online, you need to have so many articles out a day, like, to get traffic to your website, to get it on the top of Google and all that kind of thing. And you will just be writing about things that it's like, is this helpful? Is it necessary? I don't think so. Like there'll be things like, you know, a a police um, press release will come out. Like there's been a fire or there's been a fire at such and such a place. Um, The police don't know whether or not it was on purpose or an accident. Uh, It was in this area, this has been affected. And it's like, why am I writing this? Like just wait until the full story's out unless it's like really really like important in the public interest breaking news then fair enough but I think there's a lot of like just needless articles that are like 300 words long that just for the sake of getting traffic and it's it's a waste of resources I'd say yeah it's interesting that like it is dictated a bit more by the algorithms and the clicks and stuff like that is this does this become a big restriction or is it just the one-offs um, I'd say it, it's not too bad, actually. Like, it, in my case, personally, I think I do try to choose jobs that aren't, aren't going to be like that, to be fair. So no offence to anybody who does this, but I'm just not interested in entertainment reporting, like celebrity news and stuff like that. It's yeah. just really not my thing. I don't follow it enough anyway to even do it. So I just wouldn't take a job in that because I'd find it really boring and, like, painful to have to do something that I'm just so uninterested in. <laughs> But I have had times where I've been like, I feel like I could be doing something a little bit 
more important here. Like, I know I told you last time about the, I was just, I had to write about like this awful milky cup of tea <laughs> that people were going out, like people were outrageous about the cup of tea on Twitter. And it was quite a funny article. Like, you know, it will get the clicks on Facebook. Facebook users would love that story. <laughs> but it's just like, you know, I could be writing about something else right now. <laughs> it's funny because we were talking about um the last time we spoke about um oh what's the bloody word called like attention spans and stuff and how journalism now i i think has been condensed or you get told if it's a longer story that it actually requires a bit more attention um because yeah i mean like with the tea with the the cup of tea story i can imagine that's a quick read you know yeah it's literally here's this cup of tea here's what the twitter users have said here's also a link to the tweet so you don't actually have to read this article you can just click on the tweet and have a look for yourself and I, I do think that even I like I have all these articles open on my laptop and I have to dedicate time to reading them and if it's not if it's not written and engagingly enough or my brain's just not my brain's in TikTok mode I can't read it all at once I'll read like two paragraphs like look at my phone read another few paragraphs and look at my phone and I always say like, and it is bad because this is literally my job, but I always say that if I've read an article from top to bottom, no break, like that was a good article. And the thing is those long reads and the, the pieces of work that have like loads of sources, loads of interviews, like, and loads of color. And like, it's been written really well. They're always the best pieces and people mm. just don't have the, I don't know if it's like, they don't have the capacity or it is just like a complete attention span thing, like a dopamine thing of, I just want to go and TikTok and watch short videos yeah so 100% like it is interesting I'm a victim to this as well like my the deficit I will get my news from like those TikTok journalists that'll just give me like the lowdown or like god I mean I'm awful for this Twitter I just get the headlines you know I don't actually it it takes a very good article for me to be like actually read it but then I miss all the nuance like if I get a headline, I'm straight, I'm straight in the echo chamber I'm straight in like the camp that at the hill that I'm gonna die on you know yeah, and it's so dangerous because headlines are so misleading, like, all the time. I've had to push back on headlines before because I'm just like, this does not actually, like, really explain what the article's about. Like, it's just, they'll put a statistic in there and it's, like, not necessarily misrepresented, but it's just, like, there's way more to be said. Like, it's not just a statistic. It's, like, what's behind the statistic? Like, why, why is this happening? And when you click through to the story, you will often find that, and a lot of the time it'll be like a really boring story, but with like an engaging headline. Mm. Uh, it's it's so important to read the full story. It's like part of the reason we're in all these political messes, to be honest, that people don't read the story. But, and this is another tangent that I, I could go on for hours. I just think they need to teach media literacy in school because you don't just, people don't realize like that, who these papers are funded by, the, the headline doesn't tell the full story even the research in the article can be biased like it's people need to be taught how to like think critically about the news in my opinion it's not it that doesn't come naturally to you it doesn't really come naturally to anybody you have to learn that so i think it's important that schools get media literacy on the curriculum no, 100%. I, th I think we got, like, a general overview of, like, oh, newspapers can be biased, you know? And as you get older, you kind of read, like, the Daily Mail and you're like, okay, they might have an agenda here. But, like, everything is commissioned. Everyone has an agenda, I'm sure. And I think you're completely right, is that 
I don't think, I mean, is it dangerous to, t to teach critical thinking though? Like if I'm being really cynical about it, do they want people to actually engage in critical thought? No, of course they don't. Like I won't get my tin hat on, but like, I don't, I, I don't think it would benefit a lot of people if they really did teach everybody to think critically because it's even, that's why like the culture wars, mm. you know, they, there's always a scapegoat. They use the culture wars to like distract everybody basically. And, instead of having like a common energy or uh, en enemy, sorry, or, you know, like people and Brexit was like the case study for it. Oh. Like everybody bought into those cultural topics and all they had to do was like read the fine print or even in the general election. And I'm guilty of this as well. Like not reading the manifestos. You should be reading manifestos. You're not voting for a person like you're voting for the policies and you're not really voting. You're not even voting for what they say on the, on the stage when they're having the debates like you need to read between the lines all the time and like we just never do it so um, and I am guilty of it as well no 100% there is a special there there's a special place and a bad place for whoever came up with that 300 millions going to the NHS headline because that was on it wasn't that on a bus at one point and like everyone was like yeah Brexit because you know all the money's gonna go to the NHS is it fuck is it fuck honestly literally honestly don't don't even go there because it, I get so angry. Like, how do you... And now I don't believe any of them. I don't believe mm. a word any of them are saying. Yeah. I, I like... I'm still going to vote for people, like, if they if they have policies that, that speak to me, you know. But I don't believe that they're going to do it. But I, that... Brexit was crazy. It was actually crazy. They made a, a film about it, about... Um, I can't remember the name, but it was on Netflix. It was something about like civil war, I'm sure, but it was about Dominic Cummins, Benedict Cumberbatch plays Dominic Cummins, and it is a pretty interesting movie. It's kind of, it's a bit pro Dominic Cummins, I would say, but it does go into like his genius, as they call it. Mm. It's always a genius, isn't it? They're always, they're always a genius, or like uh, that's yeah, that is the narrative. <laughs> Mastermind. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. Um, so who? who should our listeners be looking out for whose article should we be reading or what publications do you think are doing the best to not be the horrible okay that's a good question so i'm gonna preface it by saying there's not really any non <sighs> bias isn't the word every publication leans one way so that's yeah. what you have to keep in mind when you're reading these things it's even as you don't have to be biased within the reporting like you can you can report all of the facts, but this story has been chosen by a particular yeah. publication because they want to tell that story. There's countless stories that could be told and they chose to tell this one. So I suppose that's one way of looking at it. And I am a left-wing person, so I'm going to recommend the left-wing publications. Uh, but actually, Byline Times, um, I don't read them enough, actually, but they are a very, 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 very good publication. Like They do a lot of investigations, a lot of political reporting, and yet... That, I don't know why they're actually really slept on, like nobody ever talks about them, but they're like breaking investigations every single week. So I definitely have a look at Byline Times. Um, and then my favourites are Hook magazine. Um, I just think they're great. Like they're very focused on news culture. They do a lot of political kind of stories. Mm -hmm. um, and Dazed Media as well is going really... It, I never used to read it as much and they got a new editorial team. And I feel like they're doing really, really well. Like they're doing bits at the minute that you can see that the coverage is kind of 
change it a little bit and again yeah. go into a, a little bit more political but focused at young on young people and i would also say woo by itv it's a gen z focused publication so i always say like i don't know if like they would be annoyed at me saying this but it's like vice mm. but for you for for younger gen- the younger generation so mm. vice is very millennial like, yeah, like yeah, i yeah. still relate to vice a little bit but i do think i'm a tiny bit young for their content and i'm a little bit too old for woo's content as well to be <laughs> honest i'm like on the cusp but woo is great for like gen z readers um who else i love tribune that's because i write for them probably uh and navara media and in terms of writers so i'm gonna have to shout out my friends do Serena it smith she's amazing sean bradley is also great and i really really love amelia tate she's a features journalist for the guardian mostly but she writes everywhere and she just has the most engaging articles she writes about the most random things she's got a newsletter as well called but you guys should read it as well it's a really really good newsletter does it is it like overviews like what is it news of the week what is it no it's just articles that like she couldn't get commissioned elsewhere and she still really wanted to write about it oh that's so nice so she she just did it for a newsletter instead let's see oh the it's called the waiting room oh that's such a good name it's really good also polly smith or smythe i'm not actually sure how you pronounce her name which is bad because i've spoken to her so many times (laughs) she just got hired as a labor reporter for navara media and there's just no industrial reporters anymore. And she's my age, she's a girl, and she's killing it. So she's really good as well. Oh, love that. Also love that they were all women. I just, I, I, I relate to female writers like so much more. I honestly, like, this is probably bad, but I hardly ever read any articles that are written by men. Not on purpose, <laughs> but just because the stuff that they write about, like, I tend to not have any interest in. No, I always say this as well, like, I feel really, really lucky because when I was, like, starting out in freelance journalism, there were so many women who were just killing it. Almost all of my editors are women. Like, I very Mm. rarely work with men, which, like, no hate, but it's so good working with women because you're just like, I'm so inspired by you, like, and especially when it's a story that's specific to women. Refinery29 is also a really good publication that I would, I would, work for them 100%. I would not be freelance if they gave me a job. Um, And that's like mostly women again, because it's lifestyle. Yeah. And I just have so many women to look up to. I feel really lucky because it is, in reality, it's a really male dominated industry, but I just have like an echo chamber of really sick women. I love that. I love that so much. That's amazing. Um, Ella, is there anything else that... Oh, I have a final question. I don't know why I was about to wrap up. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing everything today. Um, I feel like I've learned a lot and I'm sure the listeners are great. You are actually amazing. And also kind of made me want to leave my job so I can like write about whatever I want to do. But um, it's <laughs> obviously not you that easy. <laughs> well, you know what, right? I have an idea for an article, but... It's so just like, you know, when you think you have a thought and you're like, I'm the only person experiencing this. No one's going to, I feel like if I talk to people about it and they felt the same, then I'd write a little blog post and then just like, maybe I'll just tag people in it and be like, do you want to, do you want to pay me for this? <laughs> Go on. What's the idea? Um, It's about how I, oh God, this is going to be embarrassing, but you know what? I can cut it out of it if, it, if shit hits the fan. I feel like, um... <laughs> I'm physically like unable to work 
and take anything seriously because of like just a general existential crisis that I have at all times you know like I'm like the planet's burning why am I why am I like just living my life like normal you know that is not just you <laughs> I promise it's not just you Thank that's you. literally everybody that is me I think that's a good article idea. Yeah, because I just like like anything. I just can't. I can't take things seriously. Like when people at work, especially, talk about like KPIs and this that has to be delivered and this that has to be delivered. I'm like, first of all, this is all a construct, and the planet's burning, and I'm really I'm struggling to take anything seriously. I just want to like no, have fun. So true. I actually, think that's a really interesting um, topic. Thank you. It's kind of like existential dread in a way, isn't it? Yeah. Just it kind of paralyzes you or makes you like just want to have fun. A hundred percent. It's it's relentless. Like it's always there. It's I can never escape it. Like even in the best of moments, I'm like I really need to save this moment. Or even in the worst of moments, I'm like it doesn't matter anyway. You know, this is all this is all just shits and giggles. I know, I know, it kind of is, like, it's a bit nihilistic, it's a good way yeah. to think about things, because you're like, there's nihilism where it's like, nothing matters, I hate everything, like, why am I, like, I, I can't be bothered doing anything, because, like, mm. life is terrible, and it's all, it's all gonna end anyway, or yeah. it's like, well, it's all gonna end anyway, so might as well have fun while I'm here. Yeah. It's a good way to think about things. Exactly. I want, I, want, I don't want to keep you, because I can talk for England, but I once watched this uh, video, right, called it's called time lapse of the future of the universe mm. my boyfriend showed it to me i just come back from like a hospitality shift i hadn't even showered or anything and he puts it on and it is literally a time lapse of the future of the universe and it's just like goes on and on and on for like billions of years and spoiler alert like there's no second big bang it just like goes until like the earth is in a black hole or whatever mm. like you should watch it but when you're in a good state of mind i literally had a panic attack because i was just like I felt so like, like it didn't matter, nothing mattered. Do you know what I mean? I was yeah. going this really horrible thought cycle of like, nothing matters, nothing matters. And my boyfriend was just like laughing at me because he, he sees it as in like, yeah, nothing matters. So like, who cares? And I was just like, I can't go to work. Like tried to put Netflix on. I was like, I can't watch Netflix. Like nothing matters. I literally had a panic attack, but it was, it's that feeling of like, I can't take any of this seriously. We could be in a simulation. Oh no, I did a podcast episode on this and my because my friend Lucy's a, a philosopher and she was like, Yeah, so the the jury the jury on this is that we probably are in a simulation. So A hundred percent. Exactly. Um so I think this is an interesting place to leave it because people's minds are gonna be doing the thing. <laughs> <laughs> I you know what I was thinking as well? I am such a bad host in regard to my own semantics. Like I just did not have the vocabulary to be able to express what I want to say. And I was listening to another podcast on how restrictive the English language is and that we don't have enough words to describe feelings or experiences. So maybe it's the English language's fault. It's not me. Uh but anyway. No, it definitely is. It's like in Germany and like Japan they have words that just like like there's this word I'm not gonna try and remember it because I, I will butcher it but like there's a word in Japan for like having a pile of books that you that you haven't read mm. like why do they have a word for that I mean because we need that yeah exactly we need I was having a conversation with my friend literally just before this podcast and I was like trying to explain like this feeling that I had and I was like I have there's no words for it like because it's like I wasn't annoyed I wasn't sad, I wasn't like stressed, I was just like really like 
it's an abstract feeling. It's like we need more words. Like, don't don't beat yourself up. Also, I've got no vocabulary. I have to use the synonyms on Google all the time. That was me when I was writing essays. And I like hook onto one word. Like I remember I learned the word unabashed when I was like in sixth form. Every single, uh, I sh- honestly, I kid you not, almost every other sentence, my friend Grace was editing it and she was like, <laughs> can you find another word, please? <laughs> it's even worse when there's a word in your head, it's on the tip of your tongue and you're like, I can't think of this word. And it doesn't matter, like you Google it and Google it and it just won't come up and you can't write can't write the rest of the sentence before. I always like just put like a placeholder word, highlight it and I'm like, come back to this because this is not the right word. Yeah. And you have to just like think and think and think until you remember the word. Definitely. Um, cool, Ella, I wanted to ask you as my final question, what impression would you like to leave on the world? So I saw this in the podcast notes and I was like, how the hell am I supposed to answer this question? But I suppose like if it comes to my work and it might be a bit, I wouldn't say unrealistic, but it's just like every journalist wants this. I would love to break some kind of story that like actually changed things for the better, of course. Like, you know, like kind of like the the party gate stories that led to Boris Johnson resigning and that kind of thing. Like, I'd love to do something like that where my work really, really makes a difference. But I also just want people to remember me as being like kind of happy and carefree. And just like, I, I want, I want there to be at least a few people in the world who's life I made marginally better by like being their friend or whatever that'd be enough for me that's so lovely that's amazing I mean but think of all the legacy (laughs) that your articles will have anyway you know what I mean like they're there until oblivion comes until we are in the back black hole they are on the internet and if AI takes over they'll probably read them as well that's so true I would love to have a story actually I've just thought of this now that is in like an OCR history textbook like, Ooh. be a primary source in a history story. That'd be sick. That'd be That is a good legacy to have. 100%. Or it's, like, a quote from one of your articles and it says discuss in, like, a, in, a, in, a, in a GCSE exam. Yeah, 16 marks. Yeah. No, I you can it. be, like, a 32 marker. For sure. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. No worries. Ella, thank you so, so much again. If people want to reach out to you or if they want to read your articles, where can they find you? Um, so on Twitter, I'm at Ella J Glover, and my website is www.ellajglover.com, and I'm also Ella J Glover on Instagram. So Ella J Glover, perfect. And I'll tag you and put it all in the show notes anyway. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Impressionable. I have been your host, Becky Lee. This episode was also co-produced by Darcy Bevins. If you want to find us, you can catch us on Instagram at ImpressionablePod. That's Impressionable with P-O-D on the end. And please, yeah, tell your friends, uh, subscribe and rate us five stars because we love to see it. Thank you so much and see you next week. Bye. (laughs) 